Right, let's, let's pray. Father, we ask uh, this morning that as we come to your word that you would help us, uh, that you'd help us to do so with hearts and minds that are open to what you want to do among us now. I pray that you would help me to communicate your word clearly. Um, use this now. Work among us by your spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, in preparing this passage, so in Revelation 7, 9 to 17, I found the preparation a bit difficult, actually. And I think the reason is because, uh, as I, a couple weeks ago, when I talked to you about how to read Revelation, uh, the, and, I, and I encouraged you to, to almost read Revelation in the way that you would look, like, like you would look at an abstract painting. That the kind of, with the emotions, with the imagination, and so as I'm trying to preach Revelation, I'm finding that what I really want is I want you to see the white robes. I want you to see the multitude. I want you to, because also the imagery, there's something that the imagery communicates that I have trouble putting into words, right? And so I'll, I'll and, but when I preach, obviously you got to put things into words. And so um, I'll do the best I can, but hopefully the Spirit of God can do something far beyond uh, what, I'm, what I'm offering here this morning. Um, let me start with something just a, a little bit of fun, um, but, um, but you'll see. Um, in the words of the character Sheldon Cooper on Big Bang Theory, after his World of Warcraft account had been hacked and he was robbed, he said this, 3,000 hours, 3,000 hours clicking on that mouse, collecting weapons and gold, it's almost as if it was a complete waste of time. Um, contrast that with the words of Jesus in Matthew 19, 29. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. You see, the uh, kind of a big question that's underneath what we're looking at really is what does your faith cost you? Or what are you willing for it to cost? We don't face death like they did. But, and for many of them, that's really what they were facing. Um, but for us, even still, in many different ways, the question for us becomes, um, what are we willing for our faith to cost? What's it worth? See, whatever you give up for God, it's worth it. And for us, that might look like, how, that might affect how we use our money or how we use our time or our relationships or all sorts of different ways. Whatever you give up for God, it's worth it. So for this passage, what I want to do is I want to jump into kind of the middle of the passage and then re revisit the beginning and end. And so let me start with the question that's asked of John by one of the elders in the middle of the passage in verse 13, where essentially he's asking, who are these people, right? Who are they? So verse 13, the one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? Which is a weird question in that it's somehow clearly rhetorical. Like sometimes Revelation has this almost dreamlike attitude about it. So verse 14, John answers, sir, you know. And then the elder actually answers the question. So it's almost like a rhetorical question. But, um, and then the elder says, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. 
Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Like, I love this. I want to start by focusing, thinking about these white robes that they're wearing. And this gets to their identity as a people who have been forgiven, who've received forgiveness through Christ. Now, um, I love here that their robes are white because they've been washed. Now, I'm not very good at like laundry stuff or whatever, you know, but I, I do know that it's probably not a good idea to, to, to get something really white that you wouldn't wash it in blood, <laughs> right? Like that's what we have here. They're, they've been washed in the blood of the lamb. And what we need to, to, to recognize the significance of this, we need to rewind just a little bit. In chapter 5 of Revelation, there's this crisis moment. And they, what's needed is someone that's worthy to open the scroll, but no one worthy can be found. And so John begins to weep. And this angel consoles him, and an elder says to him in Revelation 5, verse 5, Do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And you'll remember a few weeks ago, I took you into looking at this vision in Revelation 1 of, this, of Jesus glorified. And so you expect in this moment, you know, the lion of the tribe of Judah has triumphed. You expect Jesus in glorified form to show up. And instead, in Revelation 5 verse 6, we get this. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. A lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. And so it's this, this, this imagery that's being drawn on from Revelation 5, that here their, their robes, these white robes, are washed in the blood of the Lamb. And it says of them, you know, where have they come from? They have come out of the great tribulation. Now, back in chapter 6, we have those that have died by persecution crying out for justice. And so in chapter 6, verse 9, we get this. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord? Holy and true until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. And then here's where the white robe first starts, where you first get it from in Revelation. Then verse 11. Then each of them was given a white robe. And they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. Now, by the way, there's something that I think is important to this that sometimes people get wrong in how they read Revelation. And so, for example, some people will try to nail down a timeline for the tribulation, and you can kind of get from Revelation that there's three and a half years, and three and a half years, and a total of seven years. So then, therefore, maybe the tribulation is a seven-year time. And, and what, what can happen in that is sometimes we miss the point of what's actually there. Because the multitude here resembles people from Jesus' day, people throughout the ages that have lived for their faith unto death. And even to a degree, like, who are they? They are our brothers and sisters from across time that have been willing to die for their faith. We should, be, we should want to be like them 
It's even written in such a way as, as almost to say like that if you live your, your faith, live full on for your faith, that you might be part of them. Like that's a goal to be like them, to be part of that multitude. And so the picture isn't just a tribulation that's just seven years long and this is just the people from those seven years, but it's much bigger. It's that these are our people. This is, for, for you and I, these are our brothers and sisters. These are our people. These are the sort of people that we want to be like. This is our tribe, as it were, right? And so, and we get this window in this as well, in this, this attitude toward, toward death and living for Christ that was absolutely shocking in the early church. And again, that's different for us in that we don't face persecution, but there are places in the world where this is very much their thinking as well. And so what I want to do to take you into this for a moment, I want to just share with you something that, um, a, a letter from the second century, okay? And to kind of, to kind of get this, I, I'm going to share some of what, what Ignatius wrote here. And some of what he writes is, is a bit raw. Um, and the thinking, the way that he thought, is a little, you might go, ooh, that's a little bit different than what you'd normally think, right? And so let me, let me give you some of this. Here's a situation. St. Ignatius of Antioch has been arrested and he's being taken to Rome from Syria where he will likely die. And some Roman Christians hatch a plan to, to rescue Ignatius. Ignatius hears of this, and so imagine traveling then. It's slow. He's got a detachment of 10 soldiers that are, that are taking him from Syria to Rome. And from time to time, he's able to write, to, to like communicate with people a bit, and to even is able to write this letter. And so we have this letter to the Romans that's written during this time, okay? And so if you search it on Google, you can read the full part of this letter. I'm just going to give you a few quotes from it. But so he, he's able to write this letter to these Roman Christians that he knows want to rescue him. And he says some things like this. Check this out. Things are off to a good start. May I have the good fortune to meet my fate without interference. What I fear is your generosity, which may prove detrimental to me. For you can easily do what you want to. Whereas it is hard for me to get to God unless you let me alone. I shall never again have such a chance to get to God, nor can you, if you keep quiet, get credit for a finer deed. For if you quietly let me alone, people will see in me God's word. But if you are more enamored of my mere body, I shall, on the contrary, be a meaningless voice. Grant me no more than to be a sacrifice for God while there is an altar at hand. Do you get what's happening here? Like, he's going, I'd rather die for Christ. Like, what a, a testimony to the world if I die for Christ. Why would you ruin that? Um, let me read a few more quotes from, from him. Check this out. He says this, It is a grand thing for my life to set on the world, kind of like the setting of the sun, and for me to be on my way to God so that I may rise in his presence. And he says to pray for him, but pray that he may have strength of soul and body so that he may not only talk but really want it that he may not be merely just called a Christian, but actually be one. He says, the greatness of Christianity lies in its being hated by the world, not in being convincing to it. And he says, I plead with you, do not do me an unseasonable kindness. 
Let me be fodder for the wild beasts. This is how I can get to God. What a thrill I shall have from the wild beasts that are ready for me. I hope they will make short work of me. I shall coax them on to eat me up at once and not to hold off, as sometimes happens through fear. And if they are reluctant, I shall force them to it. Forgive me, I know what is good for me. Now is the moment I am beginning to be a disciple. May nothing seen or unseen begrudge me, making my way to Jesus Christ. Come fire, cross, battling with wild beasts, wrenching of bones, mangling of limbs, crushing of my whole body, cruel tortures of the devil, only let me get to Jesus Christ. There is living water in me, which speaks and says inside me, come to the Father. Right? See, we are part of an amazing heritage of people throughout the world and throughout time living for Christ regardless of the cost. Which again then brings me, again, whatever it costs, it's worth it. And brings me to some of the imagery that we also see in the rest of this passage. Like from the beginning of our passage that we've heard mentioned already, we get this picture of worship. But it's a building picture through Revelation. So in chapter 4, we get this, these glorious, complex creatures that day and night never stop saying, which we use this phrase in our communion, right? Never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And when they worship, 24 elders lay their crowns before the throne and join the worship. You see, things are building. And in chapter 5, we revisit the worship, but now it's joined by tens of thousands of angels. And in chapter 7, we have this 144,000 that join in. And then we get to our passage for today with this great multitude. Verse 9. After this I looked, and before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God. Sometimes, living out your faith may make you feel like you are alone, or like you are part of a small group and the opposition is greater. And yet what we're meant to be able to do is we're meant to be able in reading this to realize that the multitude is our people. That we are not alone. That we are part of that. Um, the, the picture here of worshiping with this great multitude is, is stunning, isn't it? And I wonder what the, um, what the lar- like Sharon mentioned, the largest group you've ever been part of. I wonder what the largest worship moment you've ever been part of might be, right? And there's, um, for me, it would probably, one of the, I, mean, I think one of the, probably the best options would be to, to mention, um, has anybody ever heard of Promise Keepers? There's a few people, there you go, oh yeah, quite a, all right, fantastic. In 1995, Promise Keepers did something bold in Minnesota, where I'm from, where they booked out a thing called the, the, the Metrodome, which is the largest stadium in Minnesota, okay? The Metrodome can hold 62,000 people. The invitation was to, to spend a, a reasonable, like a, quite a, a chunk of money, 
but for a day of speakers and worship and stuff like that, it was going to be really good. And it was for men, okay? So the Promise Keepers movement was for men, challenging men to be godly men. 60, they sold out. There were 62,000 men at this event, okay? Um, when 62,000 men, by the way, open their mouths to worship, the base is unbelievable, <laughs> okay? And the feeling of being there as part of that worship was stunning. And it doesn't compare to being part of the multitude, right? This is what we're looking forward to. This is what we will be part of. Whatever you give up is worth it. And then our passage ends by kind of cataloging many of the things that people will suffer and many ways that they will suffer. And really it's picking up phrases from Isaiah that are being brought forward and, and will end the book of Revelation as well. But the picture here is beautiful that, that there's so much in the presence of God that that presence is their shelter in verse 15. In verse 16, never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. Verse 17, for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. We are invited to live for Christ in a way that at times may be costly. Are you set on doing what is right, even if you have to suffer for it? We're living for Christ sometimes as a minority, sometimes against the tide. And there will be times when that's difficult. And yet we need to realize we are part of a great multitude. We should be willing to suffer for what is right, which clarifies what we're living for and challenges us to stand for what really matters for eternity and for Christ. And our hope for the future is bigger than any sacrifice we make now. Whatever it costs, whatever your faith costs, whatever your relationship with Christ costs, it is worth it. Let's pray. Father, thank you Thank you for the, the invitation that Christ gave his disciples to come and die. And Father, although um, for, for us in many ways you've called us to patient endurance, where we may not have to lay down our lives, but in many ways we have to make many right decisions and even costly decisions in following you. I pray that you would encourage us with the big picture that you give to us here. And Father, I pray for, for people across all of us with the different situations that we face, that you would strengthen us, that you would help us. In Jesus' name. Amen.